Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. We are continuing on this summer in a series out of the book of Psalms. We're calling it Summer in the Psalms. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the first psalm, the very first psalm, Psalm chapter 1. So if you'd like to turn there, Psalm chapter 1, there's always something special about being first. And I think the Lord in His wisdom and His providence put this psalm at the beginning of the Psalter for a reason. And I think we're going to see that today as we look at this precious psalm. Psalm chapter 1 will be our text for today. Well, every so often for fun, uh, or if we're just bored with nothing to do, Kathy and I will sometimes watch a game show on, on television. And if you've noticed, many of the old game shows uh, have now been repackaged with bright lights and, and new hosts, some of them even shown in prime time. It, it is rare, but on occasion, we may watch an episode. Older shows like Family Feud, Press Your Luck, Let's Make a Deal, The Price is Right, and so many others have reemerged as popular family entertainment. Another game show that's been repackaged is called Password. Some of you may have seen that show over the years. And on that show, one partner gives clues to the other partner to try and get them to say the password, which is printed on their note card. And so let's just say that the password is sky. So the partner may give the clue blue to try to get their teammate to say sky. If you've ever seen that game show you know that one of the strategies to get their partner to say the password is by giving a clue that is opposite of the answer they're looking for, right? So for instance, a person might give the clue hot, hoping that their partner will say cold, or give the clue up and hope that their partner will say down. And so you get the idea. In a spiritual sense, if righteous was the password, Someone might say wicked, because wickedness and righteousness are opposites that stand in stark contrast with one another. And that's essentially what we're going to find today in our psalm. Psalm 1 is one of three wisdom psalms, along with Psalm 37 and Psalm 119. And the wisdom psalms are very practical in nature, and they they really hit us right where we live. So if you want a brief synopsis as to how to live your life for God, to live your life wisely, here it is. Psalm 1 is the best of both worlds because it's both descriptive and instructive. It's descriptive in the sense that the psalmist describes the way of the righteous, and he describes the way of the wicked. It's instructive in the sense that the psalmist gives the key to living a life that's well-pleasing to the Lord. And so we must begin today by asking the question, is that our desire? Is it our desire to live a life that's well-pleasing to the Lord? When you wake up in the morning, what is it that you think about for your day? Certainly, we have all kinds of things that we must do. There's all kinds of things on our list. But is it all done with the idea that we want to live our lives well-pleasing to the Lord. That should be at the heart of the, the Christian. This should be our desire to live a life that is, that is pleasing to the Lord. Because we'll all stand, if we're a Christian, we'll all stand before Christ one day. True? 
at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, we will all stand before Jesus and we'll give an account as to how we lived our life for him. So at the heart of what we do, at the heart of how we think, we must have as our number one priority to live a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord. The Lord said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we'll see that the psalmist fleshes out that idea as we work our way through this wonderful, wonderful psalm. You see, this psalm seems to clearly present a choice that every person must make. It's the proverbial fork in the road. This road is the way of righteousness, and this road is the way of wickedness. And so the question that we ask is, which way will we turn? Now, as we begin today, let me just dispel what's a common misunderstanding of the doctrines of grace. We believe 100% that God is sovereign over all things. And that means that we believe that God is in complete control of all things, including the salvation of the souls of men and women. Salvation is the monergistic work of God whereby he gives his saving grace to whomever he wishes. But he never saves anyone against their own will. God never saves people who have no desire to be saved. And so follow me here. In God's sovereign act of saving sinners, God regenerates the heart, right? Regeneration must precede faith or no one would ever believe. God changes the will of sinful people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and deserving of eternal damnation so that we eagerly and willingly repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. God is not the author of sin. Man is responsible and culpable for his sin. And so if man chooses the way of the wicked... That is on him, not on God. And so with that in mind, I want to read for you, as we begin today, this beautiful wisdom psalm. So follow along, if you would, and we'll start here in verse 1 of chapter 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so here we find three descriptive ways. Three descriptive ways. In verses 1 through 3, we find the way of the righteous. In verses 4 and 5, we find the way of the wicked. And then in verse 6, we find the way of the Lord. And so that's how we're going to work our way down through the text today. And we want to first begin by examining what the psalmist says about the way of the righteous. Verse 1 again, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And so the psalmist begins here by saying, how blessed is the man. How blessed is the man. This word blessed or blessed, along with its companion words, bless and blessing, is mentioned 108 times in the psalms. And it refers to the joy and contentment that we as believers should have because of our relationship with our God. And so this is akin to spiritual happiness. Tracking? Spiritual happiness. Joy and contentment that is ours because of who God is and what he has done for us. In other words, the way of the righteous finds blessing. So we as Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet, right? I mean, we should have a predisposition to joy and contentment. Being joyful is so important to God that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 that Christians are to rejoice always. But what about when harder times come? What about when the difficult periods of life come? Well, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God knew we needed trials. God either causes the trials to come into our life, or he allows them to come into our life, but he uses trials to produce endurance in us. We sometimes, I think, view the Christian life as a series of sprints. So each day we get up out of bed and we sprint through the day. But the scriptures seem to indicate that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a series of sprints. It's a long journey. It's a long marathon. Just watching the track the World Track Championships the other day, and I just can't even imagine these people will run for miles and miles and miles and miles. And they don't start out super fast because they'll burn out. And so they know that they need endurance. And so they run the race, this marathon, and they run it with strategy. And so they don't sprint out of the gate they know that it's a long, long journey. And this is, the, this is the, sort of the idea that we have with the, with the Christian life. And so trials come into our lives because they are good for us. And we're to even consider it all joy when that happens. So when difficulties come into our lives, realize that God is sovereign, right? This is where we must practice what we believe. We believe God's in control, right? Not just when things are going well for us, but even when things come into our life or creep into our life that are, that are difficult to deal with. God's got it. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. He's using trials in our lives to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. We don't like them. I don't like them. I don't like when difficulties arise 
But the Lord uses trials to keep us on our toes. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 speaks of contentment. Paul said, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And I love this, I love this last sentence here in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, that's not in the context of a running back playing football. I played with guys that had that verse. They were God, uh, godless guys, but they had that verse up on their locker in the locker room that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can run through the biggest lineman. I can knock him on his rear end. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens That's not what he's referring to. He's talking about real-life trials. When things come into our life that are difficult, We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't matter if we have a lot or a little. We can get through life because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So those of us who have been blessed by God, we should have a predisposition to joy and contentment. Joy and contentment should be our default position. I love the default settings on my smartphone. If I'm at my house, my phone automatically switches to my home's Wi-Fi. But if I am at the church, it switches to the church's Wi-Fi. We visit our, my brother and sister-in-law maybe once a year in Illinois. And as soon as I walk into their house, my phone switches to their Wi-Fi. You see, no matter where the Christian may be or the circumstances they're in, our default position should be joy and contentment. Because the way of the righteous is joy and contentment, spiritual happiness, because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Well, sometimes we learn best through warning or by being instructed as to not what not to do. And this is the psalmist's approach here In verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And so you want to be counted among the blessed? You want to exhibit joy and contentment in your life? Then don't do these three things, the psalmist says. He says, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, don't stand in the path of sinners, and don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And so here we find the three don'ts in the downward spiral. Walk, stand, sit. Don't walk with the ungodly, don't stand with sinners, and don't be seated with the scornful. And so you notice the progression, right? There's an intended progression here that the psalmist has for us in verse 1. So trouble begins for the Christian when we begin to walk with someone who's in sin, To not walk in the counsel of the ungodly means that we're not to receive advice or direction from the wicked. The ungodly are wicked, sinful people who are characterized by godlessness. Why would a Christian even consider receiving their ungodly counsel? 
The idea of walking implies forward progress, right? A Christian can't progress spiritually when he or she is walking next to ungodly people. Why? Because as, as 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good morals. So the righteous man doesn't receive counsel from the wicked. But what happens when he does? Their spiritual progress stops and they stand in the path of sinners. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person, do not associate with one who is easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. If someone's in a snare, caught in a snare, they become immobile. And this is the third stage of this downward spiral that the psalmist describes here, sitting in the seat of scoffers. A scoffer is someone who is blatantly opposed to the things of God in word or in deed. And this is what Paul was referring to when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, which says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? This is true in every potential close partnership, not just marriage. Yesterday we had a wonderful marriage ceremony. Southern Lancaster County, Ethan and Jillian were joined together as husband and wife. It was a beautiful ceremony. They are equally yoked together as believers. They both love Christ. They both love the Lord. They both want to live their lives for him together in the covenant of marriage. But I'm not marrying someone who's an unbeliever to a believer. Why? Because it's clear what, what fellowship can light have with darkness. What does righteousness and wickedness have in common? They're complete opposites. And so we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so the picture here starts with someone walking next to sin. Walking next to sin. Then stopping to stand and to take it all in. And then finally, sitting right down in sin's seat to participate in it. We should know this. We should know this. We would all do well to heed the words of Proverbs 13, 20, which says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so be very careful who you choose as your primary friends. The righteous doesn't walk, stand, or sit with the wicked. And this is about as practical as it gets, right? Who we hang out with matters. We have to make conscious decisions as to who we're going to make our primary friends. I I had to do this when I was in high school. I was an athlete. I played three sports. I was uh, involved in so many activities in school and so on and so forth. And these people that I went to school with, I hung out with them at practice We did all kinds of things together when we were growing up. We were friends when we were growing up. But when it mattered, I had to separate from them in some ways because they weren't going to be good for me. They weren't going to be good for me. I needed to to separate from them. I didn't go to the parties on the weekend and hang out with them and do all the things that they were doing. 
I had to make a conscious decision that I'm not going to hang out with these guys who don't have the same moral standards, spiritual standards that I am supposed to have. And instead, I'm going to hang out with guys that maybe don't have the, the same exact interests as me. Guys that were in my youth group at church, those are the people that I chose to make my primary friends. Who we hang out with is so vitally important. And so be very careful who you choose as your primary friends. So instead of that, instead of standing in the path of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, walking in the counsel of the wicked, what are we to do? And he says here in verse 2 that we are to delight in God's Word. This makes all the difference in the world. This is why I had uh, Blake read that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that concluded with the adequacy of the Word of God, right? The Bible is adequate for us to know how to live our lives for God, the psalmist says here, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. The righteous delight in what God's word says. Literally, it means to enjoy or to be completely satisfied with. We live in a world where <laughs> satisfaction, I can't get no satisfaction. Remember that song? That's the, that's the mantra of the world that we live in today. Nobody seems to be able to be satisfied with anything. But the psalmist says we're to be satisfied in the law of the Lord. Delight in it. Enjoy God's Word. Be completely saturated in it and be satisfied with it. Why? Because 2 Peter 1.3 says, in His Word, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. There's an element here of enjoying God's Word. Enjoying God's Word. One of my favorite things to do is to go down to my office, get a cup of coffee first. Get a cup of coffee. Walk down the steps to my office and to sit and to spend time in God's Word. I enjoy it. I love it. I look forward to it each and every day. Spending time in God's Word should be like going for a swim after a hot day's work. It's like a cool glass of lemonade after we've been doing yard work all day in 100-degree heat. Do you enjoy the Word of God? Is that a part of your regular routine? Is, it, is, is that who you are? Are you, are you someone who is satisfied with God's Word? That you enjoy being alone with God to, to hear from Him through His Word? You see, the world's wisdom is useless to the Christian. It should be God's Word that lights the path of our lives. David said, your word have I hid in my heart that I would not sin against you. And, and I love this here. The psalmist is saying that the, the righteous mulls over God's word 24-7, day and night. And what happens when we meditate day and night? What happens when we delight in and meditate on the word of God? 
Well, look at verse 3. Two results of meditating on God's Word. First, we find here that when we meditate on God's Word, we will have deep roots. Notice he says, we will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. We'll have deep roots, a solid foundation for navigating through life's difficulties because trials are coming. You're either coming out of one, you're in one, or you're going into one. Trials are a part of life. And so we must have deep roots. Israel's in the Middle East, as you well know, and it's more desert than anything else, especially in the southern part of Israel. Totally barren. As you get down towards the Dead Sea, it's just all brown. Hardly ever rains. There are no freshwater streams. Any foliage, which is really kind of hard to find, has very shallow roots. But the northern part of Israel is much more lush. And if there's ample water, a tree's roots grow deep. There's stability there, right? If, if there's little to no water, a tree's roots will be shallow at best and will be susceptible to spiritual danger. Kind of like what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. When the storms of life come, those who delight in God's Word have deep roots. Deep roots. Oh, I've seen our trees bend when there's a bad storm a-brewing and I see the trees going back and forth but there's strong roots there. They may move back and forth, but they're not being uprooted. They're not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Notice that the psalmist says that if we as Christians have deep roots, we will yield fruit. Our leaves will not wither. And so the first result of meditating on God's Word is that we'll have deep roots, a solid foundation for knowing how to please God. Secondly, the second result of meditating on God's Word, he says here, is that we will prosper. He says, we'll be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The word of faith folks would say, oh, see, here it is. It's right here. It's right here in the Bible. He's speaking of prospering financially. If you meditate on God's word, you'll receive a windfall of finances from God. He will bless you with material goods. Now, remember the context here, right? Context is so important for our understanding of Scripture. The psalmist is contrasting the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. He's speaking in a spiritual sense, and we'll see that more in just a moment when we examine the way of the wicked. You know, many of the great heroes of the faith had very little in terms of material goods, but they were rich in what mattered. Their crowns were laid up in heaven Remember what Jesus said in his great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19? He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in 
and steal, but we are to lay up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so verses 1 through 3 here speak of the way of the righteous. Now notice here in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist describes the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And so secondly here, the psalmist describes the way of the wicked. I don't need to tell you this, but I'll say it anyways. The the world has a way of trying to minimize or discount the gravity of sin, right? I mean, a little white lie, right? And these kinds of statements to try to minimize sin, even to the point that the word wicked in modern culture means cool or radical, right? If you're watching ESPN and some guy takes off from the free throw line and cocks the basketball back and slams it home, one of the announcers may say, wow, that was wicked, That was cool, man. That was radical. There are TV shows and movies and Broadway musicals named Wicked. But the term wicked is not cool. It's the descriptive term of those who are evil in the sight of the Lord. Proverbs 15 and verse 9 says, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves the one who pursues righteousness. You see, there are really only two categories in the mind of God. You have the wicked on the one hand, and you have the righteous on the other hand. And here we find the fate of the wicked. The first fate that we see here of the wicked is that they will be cast away. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. As we consider the idea of chaff, we have a lot of chaff that makes it up towards our house. We have a, a farmer's field behind our home. We love it. There's nobody behind us. We really enjoy that. But uh, during the combining season, we get a lot of corn cobs up in our yard, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that I have to rake out and throw back out in the farmer's field. But we also get a lot of chaff. This is when the combine is running and they're taking all the, the grain off and, or whatever they're doing. There's, you ever see there's all this stuff flying out the sides? It's all the useless material. It's, it's, called, it's called chaff. It's called chaff. It has no value. The psalmist says the wicked are just like the chaff. They, they have no eternal value. Secondly, we see as we consider the fate of the wicked, we find in verse 5 that they will not be approved by God. First, they'll be cast away. Second, they will not be approved by God at the judgment. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. The wicked will be condemned by God at the judgment. This is why people need Christ. As we said when we started, man is culpable for his sin, right? Man is responsible for his sin, Our starting point when we come out of the womb, we are sinners. In fact, Scripture says we are conceived in sin. We're sinners before we even come out of the womb. 
We're conceived in sin. The sin nature has been passed on to us from Adam. Romans 5.12 speaks so clearly about that. We are sinners by commission, but we're also sinners because we've inherited the sin, the sin nature. The wicked will be condemned by God at the judgment. We have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Oh my. I'm looking forward to on our trip. We're heading down to Florida here after the service. And, and I'm looking forward. I, 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 I just have a, I, I enjoy talking to people. You know that. Enjoy visiting with people. But I have been working hard on trying to turn conversations into conversations about spiritual matters. And I need to continue to get better at that. I keep working at it, and I keep working at it, and I keep working at it. But let me challenge you with that. Look, look at opportunities when you come in contact with someone who may not know Christ. Try to get to a gospel conversation with them. Somehow, some way, turn the conversation so that you can speak to them about the powerful gospel message. Because Romans 1, 16 and 17 says that that's where the power lies. It's in the gospel message. The power of God unto salvation is the gospel. No one's getting saved. No one's getting saved without the gospel. And so we must be gospel-centric. People need Christ because the wicked will be condemned by God at the judgment. And then third, the wicked will not join the righteous in glory. He says, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So the wicked will not join the righteous in glory. At some point yet future, God separates the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked are separated the righteous spend forever in heaven with the Lord, and the wicked spend eternity in hell. Charles Spurgeon has a way with words. I quote him often. He said about that, he said, sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. You think about it. You're walking down the street, you look up into a tree, and there's a fish be kind of bizarre, wouldn't it? Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. You see, at some point, God separates out the righteous and the wicked. We, we, we have to have a desire within us to tell people about Jesus because their eternal destiny is at stake. We understand that God appropriates the gospel to whomever he wishes. We understand all that, but we don't know who he's going to do that with. Our job is to be faithful with the gospel message, to tell other people about Jesus. So the psalmist has described the way of the righteous. He's described the way of the wicked. And now he closes out Psalm 1 with the way of the Lord. Look at verse 6. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pretenders pretend. Contenders contend. And, and there are a lot of pretenders out there. 
There are a lot of pretenders out. They pretend to know God. They pretend to care about what God thinks until it actually impacts them. And the Lord knows the hearts and the ways of both the righteous and the wicked. He's going to prosper the righteous and the wicked will perish. You know, there's a lot of parallelism and a lot of redundancy in the Psalms. And I'm a redundant kind of a person. So I enjoy that. I enjoy the reminders as I go through and read the Psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 112. I want you to see this Psalm because it speaks to exactly what we're looking at today. It speaks to the prosperity of the one who fears the Lord. Psalm 112. Again, remember, the psalm we're looking at today is one of the three wisdom psalms. And this helps to elaborate on what we've already looked at today. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Sound familiar? His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So you see the redundancy here. You see that the Psalms reiterate the same kind of truths as it relates to the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Philippians 2.15 says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Don't forget we're salt and light. Right? We're salt and light. God has placed us here for a purpose, for a reason. Yes, He sent Christ to redeem us from our sin. Yes, He's provided a glorious way of salvation. But not just that. Not just that. That translates to what we're to do as those who have been redeemed by God. Right? We are to be the ambassadors of Christ in this life. You see, there's a, there's a stark contrast here in Psalm 1. People who walk in the counsel of the ungodly listen to worldly advice. They make plans with the wicked. They willfully participate in the sinner's way of life. Here's how the Apostle Paul described it in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. He said, those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it's not even able to do so. So God calls his children to choose 
the way of the righteous, to be set apart, holy unto God. He calls us out of the darkness to walk in the light. And this is the path to the blessings of life and peace. So the password is righteous. The password is righteous. And and the psalmist gives us all of the right clues for us to know how to live a life that's well-pleasing to Him. No mistake that the Lord placed this psalm at the beginning of the Psalter. It sets the tone for every other psalm from Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 150. There's something about being first in line. There's something about God placing something first in line. Are you living a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord? Ask yourself. Be honest with yourself. We can become so self-deceived. We can think that we're doing things or whatever, and it's good with God. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. Sometimes people say, ah, you're too hard on yourself. Ah, he's too hard on himself. I mean, if we care about what God thinks, shouldn't we be hard on ourselves? Shouldn't we look at our life and go, ah, man, I'm not up to snuff here. I'm not up to par here. Yes, I say I want to live a life that's pleasing to God, but sometimes when the details hit our lives, it's tough. I thank the Lord for this psalm. as a good reminder for me this week. I want to delight in the Word of God, the law of God. I want this to be my pleasure. And then I want to try as best I can to live it out. I hope that's your desire too. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this psalm. It's a good reminder for us that we get so busy in life that we fail to remember that you've provided everything we need to know how to live our lives for you in your word. And we, we are to meditate on it day and night. We're to, we're to constantly mull it over as we walk through life, as we come up against difficulties or other things that could come into our paths. We, we see that your word speaks to it. We hide our, your word, the meaning of your word in our hearts so that we'll avoid sin. We thank you for Jesus and for his perfect gift of salvation through your offering of his self on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you that Jesus is alive, that he's seated at your right hand, that he's preparing a glorious place for those who place their faith and trust in him. Lord, I would pray for anyone who's here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you again for all that we're learning in the Psalms. Thank you for this Psalm in particular, where it really hits us right where we live. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.